pledges are popular and sometimes powerful. Uh, perhaps you have pledged to donate some portion of your income or your time or your efforts to a good cause. So, for example, the Assist Pregnancy Center's Walk, Run, Ride is coming up on May the 13th. And perhaps you have pledged to walk or run or ride. Or perhaps you have pledged to financially support someone who is planning to walk or run or ride. Assist Pregnancy Center is one of our supported ministries as a church. It's uh, our privilege every year uh, to pledge some of our tithe dollars to help them share the gospel with mothers who are unexpectedly pregnant. Uh, we all know what a, a, a pledge is. It's a, a promise. It's a commitment from one to another. And in fact, one of the most uh, well-known pledges in the history of this country came at the end of the Declaration of Independence. Perhaps you remember it. We mutually pledge to each other our lives, our fortunes, and our sacred honor. Uh, in, in that sense, pledges can be solemn, total, and express deep loyalty. Uh, we tend to think of, of pledges as commitments that we make to a higher principle or purpose. And sometimes that is true. But what if that were reversed? What if there is a pledge that has been made by the highest person in the universe to lowly creatures like you and me? What if God, the one who is infinite, eternal, and unchangeable, what if God, the one in who it is being, is wisdom and power and holiness and justice and goodness and truth, what if God, the one who is high and holy, what if God pledged himself to people like us, people who are flawed and fallen and fallible? What if he pledged his perfect provision? What if he pledged his gracious presence? What if he pledged his mighty power? What if he pledged himself to us? How would you respond? Well, this is what we have the privilege of thinking about together this morning from God's Word. If you haven't done so already, let me invite you to open up your Bible or one of the copies provided there in the pews to Genesis chapter 28. We're going to begin in verse 10. Uh, if you're using one of those Bibles provided, you can find the passage beginning on page 22. Now, in our study of the book of Genesis, we've seen that God has created the world and everything that is in it. And He's revealed that He's going to save a people for Himself. Beginning in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, he promised that one day he would send a son who would rescue his people, God's people, from their sins. And this son we've been learning is going to come through the line of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And of course, over these past several chapters, we've learned that this family line is, is a bit messy. Uh, it's, it's quite the story. It's true to our human experience. Life in a family is messy. It's a bit mangled at times. Every family is in need of God's mercy, no matter how polished they look on the outside. So, from this point forward in Genesis, Moses, he focuses on Jacob and his family, his offspring. We've already learned that Jacob, he's, a, he's an opportunist, he's a deceiver, and yet, he is blessed. God graciously chose to set his covenant love upon this sinner. Out of the patriarchs, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, Jacob is perhaps the one who is presented in the worst light. Uh, this makes something undeniably clear. That God's love and grace is completely undeserved. Right? God pledges himself to sinners, promising to redeem and rescue them. And in response, God's people should gratefully pledge themselves to him. 
That's what we see in our passage today. In Genesis chapter 20, verses 10 to 22, we see God commit or pledge himself to Jacob. And Jacob commits or pledges himself to God. And the people of Israel, first reading this story, would have learned a lesson from their forefather, from Jacob. They would have remembered that God had pledged himself to them in covenant love at Mount Sinai. And that they should pledge themselves to him in covenant love. This is a timeless truth for us. Beloved, here's the sermon in a sentence. God has pledged himself to you. And you should pledge yourself to him. God has pledged himself to you. And you should pledge yourself to him. We're going to unpack Genesis 28 verses 10 to 22 in two sections under two headings. God's pledge and your pledge. God's pledge and your pledge. I believe there's an outline there in the bulletin that I hope will help you follow along. Let's begin with our first point, God's pledge, which is found in Genesis 28, verses 10 to 15. I want you to follow along as I read God's word. Remember uh, that God's word stands forever. Jacob says, or, or God says in his word, Jacob left Beersheba and went toward Haran. And he came to a certain place and stayed there that night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones of the place, he put it under his head and laid down in that place to sleep. And he dreamed. And behold, there was a ladder set up on the earth, and the top of it reached to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord Yahweh stood above it and said, I am the Lord Yahweh, the God of Abraham your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie... I will give to you and to your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth. And you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go. And will bring you back to this land. For I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. Well, these verses, they chronicle Jacob's initial pilgrimage from home. The revelation of God's presence to him and with him in a dream. And God's pledge or promise. We, we need to remember why Jacob is on this pilgrimage. If you look back up to verse 5 of chapter 28, you'll see that Jacob was sent away from home. Do you see it? Genesis 28 verse 5. Isaac sent Jacob away. He was sent away because he had deceived his father. And swindled the Abrahamic blessing out of him. This angered his brother Esau, who planned to kill him. And so while Isaac sends him away, under the guise that he's just going away to get married, because Rebekah had actually manipulated Isaac in the whole course of the process, uh, the reality is Jacob had to leave home because as soon as his father died, Esau had planned to kill him. That was, that's what his brother was planning to do. And this is... Got to be difficult for Jacob at some level. I mean, Jacob was a homeboy. And by that, I don't mean he was like 90s cool. No, I, I mean that uh, he, he loved to be around uh, the house with his mother. And if he had his way, he likely would have remained there happily ever after. But his sin caused so much distress in the family and anger in his brother's heart. His sin sent him away. Jacob's deception led to his departure. That was a consequence of his sin. And so let us learn this spiritual lesson from this reality. There are often follow-on consequences to our sin. We often don't see them in the moment. But the hook of sin is regularly attached to a line 
that might pull us where we never expected to go. When you are staring sin in the face, when you are tempted to bite onto that hook, remember the apparently sweet kiss of sin might pull you away from your first love. Jacob, he was all alone on this 500 plus mile journey. Note that three times in verse 11, Moses tells us about this place. It was a certain place. There were stones in that place and Jacob laid down in that place. Moses is preparing us for the reality that this will soon become an important place. It will become known as the house of God. Initially, for Jacob, it is only a safe place to stop for the night. He was not intending to be in God's house. Jacob wasn't looking for God. He was just looking for a place to stop and sleep. That's often the way it is in our lives. Often we're not looking to find God. But He is looking to find us. Occasionally, He'll use dramatic events to get our attention. Jacob stops his travel at night. Because it's not safe to travel at night. And it's even less safe if you're traveling alone. And there's a spiritual lesson here too. Sin tends to have an isolating effect. It impacts our relationships. It separates us and sends us away from the ones we love. Jacob had no choice. He had to leave home and he left all alone. Sometimes we think that sin brings freedom. But in reality, it limits our choices and our relationships. Sin isolates. And at the tail end of verse 11, we're told that Jacob made a stone a pillow and he slept. That must have been an incredibly comfortable stone, or he must have been very, very tired. And it's in this dream that God made his pathway known to Jacob. This is similar to when God had made his presence known to Abraham in a vision in Genesis 15. Uh, There God confirmed his covenant purposes to Abraham. And he's about to do that with Jacob. This revelation of the Lord's presence and promises in a dream is not normal or natural. This is a supernatural experience. This is extraordinary. You should not expect to expect God to ordinarily speak to you in dreams. You should expect God to speak to you in His Word. But dreams are very unusual. Uh, in the Scriptures, God divinely, dramatically, and personally intervenes in extraordinary ways to disclose His purposes and promises at critical moments of redemptive history. This is this dream is a unique, redemptive historical occasion. God's covenant purposes and promises, His plans for the salvation of the world, as we're going to see, are the subject of His divine disclosure. Those are the kinds of stakes at play when God shows up like this in a dream. Generally speaking, those are not the kinds of stakes at play in our dreams. Notice in verse 12 that this ladder was set upon the earth, and at the top of it reached to heaven. A few other translations point out that the word for the ladder here can also be translated stairway. And the idea is that it's resting on the earth with its top reaching into the heavens. There's actually only one other place that we see this kind of imagery in the book of Genesis. I wonder if you remember it. You remember the Tower of Babel? The whole earth gathered to build a giant staircase or ladder up to heaven. And God had to come down just to see their little ladder and then he smashed it. Here, God is revealing that He is the one who creates the pathway from earth to heaven. Not man. God creates this pathway. That's why the angels are using this ladder. It's it's indicating. And friend, recognize this. That there is nothing that you can do to build in your life. And it will lift you up to God. No amount of good works. No amount of praying. 
No amount of church attendance, no amount of Bible reading, no amount of charitable giving, not even to the church, can lift you up to God and make you pleasing in God's sight. You are like Jacob, lying on the ground. If you are to be saved, God must come down to you and lift you up to heaven. Notice what God does in the second part of verse 13. After this ladder descends, God discloses His presence and His personal name. He says there, I am the Lord Yahweh, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. Of course, this is the name that God revealed to Moses. When He told Moses that He would lead the people of Israel out of Egypt, God is revealing Himself here to Jacob. What an awesome thing it must have been to see angels descending and ascending. But greater than the angels is the one who made them. With the uttering of these words, we meet the Lord of the ladder. This is not so much Jacob's ladder. It is the Lord's ladder. The Lord who made heaven and earth. The Lord who made covenant promises to Jacob's father and grandfather. This, this would have terrified Jacob. And indeed he was terrified. If you look down at verse 17, we see that he was afraid. Now, one reason that Jacob would have been terrified is because he took the Lord's name in vain. He blasphemed the Lord just earlier. Do you remember in Genesis 27, when, what he said to his father when he deceived Isaac? When Isaac asked him how he killed and cooked the game so quickly, in Genesis 27, verse 20, Jacob said, Because the Lord Yahweh, your God, granted me success. He misused the name of the Lord. He used God's name to deceive his father, Jacob. And here, the Lord Yahweh is disclosing himself to Jacob. And Jacob almost certainly thought that he was about to meet his doom. Here is this God that he had blasphemed and sinned against, who's coming to meet him. But put these pieces together. Put together the ladder and the self-disclosure of God. And think about what we read earlier in the service from the Gospel of John. Remember that Jesus made that daring and divine claim that he was Jacob's ladder? Remember how the scene was introduced? Here is an Israelite, Nathaniel, in whom there is no deceit. Here is a son of Jacob. That's what an Israelite is, a son of Jacob. A deceiver. Jacob's a deceiver. But here's Nathaniel, a non-deceiver, one who's true. And Jesus says, you're going to see greater things. Jesus is making that divine and daring claim. In John 1.51, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man, on the Messiah. Jesus declares that He is God who became man to bring man to God. He is the pathway. He is the staircase. He is the ladder to God the Father. What was it that Jesus said in John chapter 14, verse 6? He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus declares that He is exclusively the way to heaven. And the Apostle Paul affirms Jesus' personal self-disclosure when he said in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5, There is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. And in Ephesians 2.18, Paul declared that through Jesus, we have access in one spirit to the Father. The work of salvation is entirely of God's initiative and accomplishment. Man cannot bridge the gap between heaven and earth. Babel proved that much. Right? God has to come down 
God has to reveal Himself. God has to rescue His people from their sin. And that is what God has done in Jesus Christ. Even here in Genesis 28, He pledged to do that. Embedded in the promises of verses 13 to 15 are God's promise and pledge of salvation. The end of verse 13 and the beginning of verse 14 repeat the promises that God made to Abraham and passed on to Isaac. They're especially reminiscent of what God said to Abraham in Genesis 13. And they have three features. Land, lineage, and love. Jacob, he clearly didn't get very far in his journey. For the land that he's lying on, God says, is really in the land of Canaan. His offspring, his lineage will have that land. I mean, did you see that divine guarantee at the end of verse 13? Just look at it. The Lord said, The land on which you lie, I will give to you and to your offspring. If Genesis has proved anything to us, it has proved that nothing can stop the promises and power of God. God once again promises that Jacob, his lineage, his descendants, will be like the dust of the earth. In other words, they'll be um, innumerable in number. You, you can't count them, there's so many. But God also promises that they're going to spread abroad to the east and to the west and to the north and to the south. They're going to fill out the land. The original language might even have uh, the idea of, of, of a kind of conquest that's taking place as they spread out. How encouraging that would have been to the first readers of this book, right? They're, they're going to the promised land. They're going to conquer it. They're going to fill it out. They're remembering this. God, God's going to be with us. He's going to give us this land. He's promised it. That's land and lineage. But what about love? I think we find it there in the last words of verse 14, where we're told that in you and in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. What God will do in and through Jacob and his descendants is going to have loving implications for the entire world. Through Jacob, God would form the people of Israel. I mean, Jacob's name will later be changed to Israel. And the tribes will come from him. This nation would come from him. And the nation would be, as, as one brother in Christ said, the womb through which the Messiah would come. The universal blessings of God's salvation will be delivered through them in Jesus Christ. But notice clearly that God's purposes of salvation are wide. They're worldwide. Right? They're not just for Israel. They're for all the families of the earth. That means they're for Gentiles too. People like you and me. If you are to know God's blessings of salvation, if you have come to know God's blessings of salvation, then you come to know them through the Son, who comes through this line of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. You've come to know Jesus because God has been faithful to His promises to them and down through the generations. Here's what God is promising. God will bless one nation temporally so that all the nations, Jews and Gentiles, may be spiritually and savingly, eternally blessed. God blesses one nation temporally with the privilege of carrying those purposes of redemption, those promises of redemption, forward through history. So that when the fullness of time came, the Savior would secure redemption for the nations eternally. Listen to how Paul describes it. God's purposes in Galatians chapter 3, verse 16. The Bible says, Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. As the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, 
And Jacob would one day have a son who would be the savior of the world. And in that way, the nations, the peoples of the world would be blessed. The families, as our text calls them here, the families of the world would be blessed. Listen again to Paul in Galatians 3, verses 7 and 8. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham. Do you hear what Paul's saying? He preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham. And to Jacob too, as we're seeing here. He said, in you shall the nations, or the families of the earth, be blessed. This is God's loving promise that He will send His Son to be the Savior of the world. Right here in Genesis 28. And if this were not enough of a gracious pledge to deceitful Jacob and to us, God gives His people yet more encouragement in verse 15. Do you you see what God pledges there? He pledges His presence, His protection, and His power. He says, I am with you. I will keep you wherever you go. And I will bring you back to this land. For I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. Do you see who the fulfillment of these promises are dependent upon? They're dependent upon God. Do you see how Jacob is going to make it back to the land that he's leaving? God will bring him back. God did bring him back. The Lord was pledging to be with Jacob his whole life. And when Jacob was on his deathbed, he told his offspring, his descendants, that God was faithful to all of his promises. In Genesis chapter 48, verse 15, Jacob said, God has been my shepherd all my life long. Throughout the whole of his life, God made his presence, his protection, and his power known. Think about that for the people of Israel who, again, are receiving this book. God had kept them and protected them in Egypt. He brought them out of that land. He shepherded them through the wilderness of Sinai and so on. In fact, God made promises to them, just as He made to Jacob here. As the people of Israel were preparing to enter the promised land of Canaan, in Deuteronomy 31.6, the Lord said, Be strong and courageous. Do not fear or be in dread of them, the inhabitants of the land. For it is the Lord your God who goes with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. You hear that echo of these promises to Jacob? These were promises that were echoed down through Israel's history too. The prophet Isaiah would comfort the people of God with these promises. So in in Isaiah uh, 41 verse 10 we read, Fear not for I am with you. Be not dismayed for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Do you hear what God says to His people? To you? It's all dependent upon Him and His power, not upon you. A little later, Isaiah says in 43, Isaiah chapter 43, verse 2, When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. These promises are true for us too. In Jesus Christ, we have God's presence and God's power, God's pledge of salvation. In the incarnation of Jesus, we have Emmanuel, God, with us. That's what Matthew teaches us in Matthew chapter 1, verse 23. And in our own journey through the wilderness of this world, Jesus has promised that He will never leave us or forsake us. That's what He told us in Matthew chapter 28, verse 20. But God in Christ 
came not only to make His presence known to us, to dwell with us in the Incarnation, but also to make His presence and power known to us through His Holy Spirit. The indwelling Spirit. I mean, this is what Peter explains in Pentecost. In Acts chapter 2, verse 33, Peter says that Jesus, being therefore exalted to the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. Jesus came not only to dwell with us, but to dwell within us. I remember the title of one book said something like, um, why, why Jesus inside us is better than Jesus beside us. Right? That is a privilege that we have. That the Holy Spirit mediates the presence of the Lord Jesus to us. I mean, this is what Paul explains in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 16, when he says, Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in you? But the ultimate goal, beloved, is that we dwell with God in the new heavens and the new earth. The ultimate goal of this promise and pledge from Genesis 28, from God, Genesis 28, 15, is what we find in Revelation chapter 21, verse 3, where we hear these glorious words, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be His people and God Himself will be with them as their God. Do you want to know why Jacob makes it back home? I mean, I know we haven't gotten there in our study, but believe me, if you keep reading the book, you'll see that he makes it back home. Do you want to know why Jacob makes it back home? Do you want to know why the people of Israel make it back to the promised land after their sojourn in Egypt? Christian, do you want to know why you will make it to Revelation 21 verse 3, to your eternal dwelling with God? Because God is with you. Because God will keep you. Because God will bring you to that land. Because God will not leave you. Because God will do what He pledged to you. What He promised to you. Because God in Christ has pledged His presence and power to bring you to that place. To that final house of God. Where you dwell with Jesus Christ. Your salvation is all of God. Because He's pledged Himself to you. Have you pledged yourself to Him? Have you, as we sung earlier, surrendered all? Have you surrendered yourself to Him? That's what Jacob does. Jacob rightly responds to God's personal pledge to him in verses 16 to 22. Now, as we read these verses and consider Jacob's pledge to God and our own pledge to God, giving ourselves up to God, let us remember that God's promises and pledge of salvation are not contingent upon us. We're not looking at how we may secure God's grace and favor. We're looking at how we live in response to the generous grace and favor of God already given. Follow along now as I read verses 16 to 22 in Genesis chapter 28. Verses 16 to 22. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep. And said, Surely the Lord Yahweh is in this place. And I did not know it. And he was afraid and said, How awesome is this place. This is none other than the house of God. And this is the gate of heaven. So early in the morning, Jacob took the stone that he had put under his head and set it up for a pillar and poured oil on the top of it. He called the name of that place Bethel. But the name of the city was Luz at the first. Then Jacob made a vow saying, If God will be with me and will keep me in this way that I go, and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear, so that I come again to my father's house in peace, then the Lord Yahweh shall be my God, 
And this stone, which I have set up for a pillar, shall be God's house. And of all that you give me, I will give, you, give a full tenth to you. What's the first thing that Jacob does when he awakes from his dream? He acknowledges what he knows and what he did not know. He acknowledges that the Lord is present in that place. This reminds us that Jacob wasn't looking for God. Uh, maybe you've had a Jacob-like experience. Uh, maybe you weren't looking for God, but God in His grace was looking for you. He found you. Jacob probably had imbibed some of the pagan theology of the ancient Near Eastern world that he lived in. Although he had been raised in a covenant home, he seemed to assume that Yahweh was a local deity. Uh, like the pagan deities of the ancient Near East, right? They were just uh, gods of these particular cities and locations. Pagans thought that gods were geographically kind of limited in those days. But Yahweh is different than all other gods. He is the Lord of heaven and earth. He is omnipresent. He is present everywhere. He's not limited to any location or physical space. Moms and dads, let me encourage you to teach your children about the greatness of our God. He is everywhere present. Communicate to your kids why this is a comfort to you. That you're never alone. That He's with you wherever you go. Communicate to your kids why this should be a comfort to them. Because for those who are in Christ, when God is near, there is no need to fear. Don't let your kids leave home like Jacob and go into adulthood without them knowing that this is our Father's world. And that everywhere they go, He will be there. But notice what Jacob says there in verse 17. He was afraid and filled with awe. He acknowledged that he was in the house of God at the very gate of heaven. In other words, it was plain to him that this ladder led up to the Lord of heaven. That it opened the way to heaven. The angels were passing back and forth through this kind of gate of heaven as they were ascending and descending upon the ladder or staircase. Babel could not open heaven's gate, but at Bethel the Lord did. And He showed Jacob that in His grace, that he would be welcomed into glory one day. That gate remains open today to you through Jesus Christ. Remember how we read earlier John 1.51, Jesus declared that He was Jacob's ladder? Well, in the very next chapter in the Gospel of John, in John chapter 2, verse 19, Jesus declared Himself to be the house of God. Jesus picks up all the Old Testament imagery of access to God. And He says that He is how you come to God. He is the temple of God. Jesus is now the place where we worship and serve the true and living God. I wonder, have you expressed your awe and wonder that God would open heaven's gate to you through Jesus Christ? Jacob not only acknowledges that God is present, but he also memorializes his encounter with God there in verses 18 and 19. He raises a stone and he renames that place. What was once a secular site, Luz, is now a sacred site, Bethel, the house of God. God dwells there. In fact, in the days ahead, the tabernacle would spend some time at that location. It would be God's house. God would have His tent there and receive worship there. In his actions, Jacob is following in the footsteps of his father Isaac and his grandfather Abraham. When God revealed Himself to Abraham in Genesis 12, Abraham built an altar of stones. 
When God revealed himself to Isaac in Genesis 26, Isaac built an altar of stones. And now that God has revealed himself to Jacob, Jacob raises a stone. The anointing of that stone with oil, the top, was a way of consecrating that place, marking it off as where the Lord met with Jacob. So when the the tabernacle, the the place where God would meet with his people in the wilderness, was finally erected in in Exodus chapter 40, verse 9, Moses anointed it with oil. This is what you do when you want to consecrate a place. So that's what, what Jacob is doing. He's consecrating that place as a sacred place of God meeting with him. Jacob would want to remember this occasion. It was a special revelation of God's grace to him. He didn't deserve to be in God's presence. Or have God set His covenant love upon him? He was a rebel on the run. And God's grace caught up with him. Christian, this is your testimony too. Right? Despite your disobedience and sin, God's grace has caught up to you and has overtaken your heart. He subdued you. And He saved you from your sin. He loved you and He lavished His mercy and forgiveness upon you. He has pledged Himself to you and promised to preserve you all the way until the end. Remember this about your God. It is important that we remember God's gracious acts towards us. He has given us regular memorials of His grace to us in His ordinances, in the ordinances of baptism in the Lord's Supper. In both of those ordinances, we are reminded that Christ died for us. He was raised again for us from the forgiveness of our sins. Uh, In The Lord's Supper, we remember that Christ shed His blood for us and gave His body for us, that we might be spared of God's wrath. It is good and right for us to remember, like Jacob is doing here, it's good and right for us to remember the goodness of God to us in Jesus Christ. And and if the Lord has performed mighty deeds in your life, perhaps a a special season of, of grace and sustainment, maybe you would be wise to mark that date on the calendar. And take a few moments on that day to thank and praise God for what He's done in your life. Find ways, even small ways, to remember God's goodness to you. To thank Him and praise Him. Day by day, do what Jacob does in verses 20 to 22. Pledge yourself to Him. Read Jacob's words again. Read verses 20 to 22. Then Jacob made a vow, saying, If God will be with me and will keep me in this way that I go... And will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear. So that I come again to my father's house in peace. Then the Lord Yahweh shall be my God. And this stone which I have set up for a pillar shall become God's house. And of all that you give me, I will give a full tenth to you. Contrary to what some people think, Jacob is not bargaining with God here. Rather, he's pledging himself to God. Look, I understand that Jacob uses a kind of if-then construction in these verses. But the if is not in doubt, right? Jacob wants God's presence, his provision and protection. And in verse 15, God has already pledged all of those things. God already pledged and promised that he will be with Jacob. God has already promised and pledged that he will protect Jacob and provide for him. God has already promised that he will bring Jacob back to the land. God has already promised and pledged to be Jacob's God. And what Jacob is doing here is he's responding through this vow. He's formally taking Yahweh as his God. Think back to when he last had God's name on his lips. Blasphemy so. Right? He he said to Isaac, his father, "I, I got this game because Yahweh, your God, 
allowed me the, the, the victory in this instance. But look what Jacob is saying. In verse 21, he's saying, The Lord Yahweh shall be my God. This is now a, a personal decision for Jacob. Jacob is pledging devotion to Yahweh in those words. And then he dedicates that site to Yahweh, erecting that pillar. And he decides to give back to the Lord a full tenth of what the Lord entrusts to him. In fact, it appears that the language has this sense that Jacob is even eager to give back to the Lord. Jacob's desire to honor the Lord with a tithe, a tenth, reminds us of Father Abraham's desire to honor the great priest king Melchizedek, the priest king of Salem in Genesis 14. And a principle that we learned from that passage, that text, was that the lesser gives to the greater. Right? In Jacob's day, when, when covenants were formed, uh, great kings would make promises to those under their care. And then servants and subjects would respond to their, with their own pledges and commitments. Jacob has come to recognize that he is in covenant relation to the great king, Yahweh, to God. And he's responding with thanks and gratitude. He's responding with generosity and giving. As one brother said, Jacob has been changed from a grabber to a giver. Scripture teaches us that where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. What Jacob intends to do with his resources is an indication that the Lord has changed his heart. And that the Lord has his whole heart. Uh, do you remember what happened to Zacchaeus, the, the tax collector, who schemed and took from other people? You know what happened when the Lord changed his heart in Luke chapter 19, verse 8? Upon meeting Jesus, Zacchaeus said, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And in light of what Zacchaeus pledged himself, Jesus said, Today salvation has come to this house. Zacchaeus was not saved because he did this act. But this act gave evidence of a renewed heart. A heart worked upon by God the Holy Spirit. Think about that in relation to your own life. What we do with our money is a good indicator of where our heart is. Where our trust is. The scriptures say, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Jacob is pledging himself, his heart to God in covenant love and loyalty. Because God has pledged himself to Jacob in covenant love and loyalty and loyalty. Jacob teaches us about how we should respond to God's covenant love to us in Jesus Christ. We should pledge our devotion to Jesus Christ above all other gods and goods in this world. Our lives should be wholly dedicated to the Lord Jesus. Our souls should be a Bethel, a house for the living God. And we should decide to give a portion back to God of what God has given to us. A tenth, a tithe of your income is a fine amount to give. But the New Testament calls us to give even more radically. Paul, in his letters to the Corinthians, urges them to give cheerfully and generously and sacrificially. And that kind of giving is indicative of giving our whole selves to the Lord. God doesn't want our pocketbooks. He wants us. He wants you. He wants all of you. Have you given all of yourself to Him. Friend, have you pledged yourself in love and service to Jesus Christ? Do you realize that like Jacob, you are not deserving of God's grace? Do you realize that you have sinned and rebelled against God? And instead of receiving 
a loving pledge of salvation from Him, you should have received judgment, eternal judgment in hell. But that is not what God has given. Praise God, friend. The good news of the Bible is that God is gracious to sinners like you and me. He gives us His Son. He sent His one and only most beloved Son to live the life that we've not lived, to die the death that our sins deserve. Jesus was perfectly obedient to God the Father. Unlike Jacob and unlike you and me, Jesus was full of grace and truth. Uh, Though Jesus, as I said, was perfectly sinless, He gave up His life on the cross. And on the cross, He was bearing the wrath of God against our sin, against the sins of His people, against the sins of all of those who never turned their sins and placed their faith in Him. And on the third day, God raised Jesus up from the dead, vindicating Him and proving to us all that His life and death on behalf of repenting sinners was acceptable in God's sight. And now God invites us to receive His pledge of salvation in His Son. He invites us to turn from our sin, being, turn from being dedicated to our sin, and instead being dedicated to the Lord Jesus Christ, to repent of our sin, to turn away from it, and to receive His grace and love and forgiveness. He invites us to trust in Jesus' work on our behalf. And all of those who do turn from their sin and trust in Jesus, then in love, pledge themselves to the King who first loved us. Friend, God has pledged Himself to you in eternal love. Would you pledge yourself to Him? Well, if you want to know more about what it means to give yourself up to the great King, to the Lord Jesus Christ, come and find me at the door after the service. I'd love to talk with you more about this good news. And I want us to think about giving ourselves up to the Lord as we conclude. Beloved, think about this passage. Think about how it's fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ. The God of heaven has come down and made Himself known to sinners like us. He came down to Jacob, a schemer and a deceiver. He came down to one totally unworthy of His grace. He came down and He pledged to protect Him, to provide for Him, and to make His presence known to Him. This is what God has done in Jesus Christ. Jesus has pledged Himself to us. He has promised salvation. He will spiritually protect us. And He has made His presence known by the Holy Spirit. He has pledged Himself to us. Let us pledge ourselves to Him. To hold nothing back from Him. To surrender all to Him. To give everything to Him. Friends, brothers and sisters, I appeal to you in view of of the mercies of God to you to offer yourself as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Friends, Jesus gave all of Himself. Let's give all of ourselves to Him. Let's pray together.